0: So that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello,
1: and welcome back to New Books in Political Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Lemis Abdelati from the Maxwell School of Syracuse University. Today, I'll be talking to Nicholas Misinski about his book, Delegating Responsibility, International Cooperation on Migration in the European Union, which was published by University of Michigan Press in 2022. Nick, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you. I'm so excited to be here.
1: So I wonder if you could begin the interview by just telling us a little bit about yourself.
2: Sure. Um, so I am an assistant professor at the University of Maine. Um, I teach in the School of Political of Policy and International Affairs and the Political Science Department. Um, my research is all on migration governance and um, the EU and its sort of policies towards migration and refugees. And I think about the sort of challenges that international organizations face in um, addressing this. Um, I've done fieldwork around the world in the EU and in Africa and other places, but um, I uh, this book comes from my dissertation fieldwork.
1: Wonderful, so I wonder if you could actually talk to us a little bit more about sort of the genesis uh, of this project and how you came to write this book.
2: Absolutely, so as I said, it's the dissertation book. Um, it came from, well, first I was working in Europe, actually London at, uh, at several NGOs and community centers with refugees before I started uh, grad school. And of course, I'm working in the front line, working with different individuals who become passionate about these issues. But you sort of see that uh, many of the government policies don't think about big structural issues. And so I went to grad school. I wanted to think about these issues. What like how does the EU actually govern or what why isn't the EU providing protection for refugees? And that was right at the beginning of sort of the increases of of, uh, boats arriving in Greece and Italy. And so because that was sort of the the confluence of those timing and my starting all of my work and research in grad school was about that and as the sort of the crisis began to unfold in 2015 and 16 i was able to do field work in greece and italy and so um i mean i was able to speak to and work with many organizations um doing awesome work on the ground, but just seeing how the um, the larger governance fails again and again. And so that's really why I, I was driven to write this book.
1: It's remarkable how well-placed you are to really t- tackle right, this, uh, this refugee crisis and, and write a book that remains very much relevant to, to current events in Europe, as well as I'm hoping we'll get to at the end. But I'm excited to, to dive into the content of the book. So the book focuses on migration management. What does that phrase mean?
2: Absolutely. Well, migration management was told to me by a, a sort of a community worker that if you're not um, if you're not anti-migrant and uh, and no borders, shut it down, and you're not an open borders, let everybody in, then you would believe in managed migration, and you should just draw the line somewhere. Now, I don't know if I agree with that um, typology, but I think it, it sort of frames how policy um, uh, makers think about migration management, that you have to draw the line somewhere. And so we're going to draw the line. Um, I theorize about it in six ways, that there are six types of migration management. So um, there are policies that manage migration about who should enter a country. There are also uh, policies to stop migrants from ever entering Right? So you can think of building a wall or someone who is checking papers at the border. There are also ways of monitoring and regulating migrants who are in a country already. So you can see that all the time in terms of work permits or refugees who have to report to police stations. And the fourth way of managing migration is removing people. That's um, deportation, classic deportation policies. Um, Then the fifth way is about deterring migrants from ever coming. Sometimes that can be um, at a border, pushbacks. Other times it can be or sort of interceptions in in, uh, the Mediterranean. Other times, deterrence can be about information campaigns, and they, they often do this as well. And the sixth way of managing migration is about controlling emigration. And it's not just about immigration, people coming into a country. It's also about controlling when people leave and then managing the diaspora, the people who are abroad. And there are are reasons and incentives for states to do both positive and negatives on all six of these areas of migration management.
1: That's fascinating. Now the the book is interested in, Um, sort of explaining international cooperation on migration management. Um, And you offer a new typology of international cooperation and non-cooperation, introducing four subtypes, coordination, collaboration, subcontracting, and unilateralism. So what are the differences between these four subtypes?
2: Yeah. Well, the the onus for that was actually because every time I was researching migration management, everyone said, well, international cooperation, this or international cooperation, that. And it's just such a broad term that it's almost not useful to say we're cooperating. Right. How? How are we cooperating? And why um, is one cooperation more effective at something than another? And so I really wanted to sort of uh, narrow in the scope conditions of what each one was, So um, the key difference between each one of these is which actors are implementing the policy, right? So I'm interested in sort of the implementation phase of a policy um, cycle, right? It's not just about who's deciding or even sort of like what priorities are important in migration management. After the decision is made, we have to decide how it's implemented. And here are four ways you can do it, right? Coordination, collaboration, subcontracting, or unilateralism. So in coordination, this is when states decide on a common policy together and then go back to their home countries and implement it through their national institutions. Right? It's usually their own immigration office or uh, you can think of interior ministries or uh, foreign uh, ministries. They're all doing it within their governments, but they've coordinated on having similar policies. Then in collaboration, you see that states agree on a certain policy, but then decide to implement it together through joint projects. And in the EU, that's usually through an EU agency. We can see the European Asylum Agency now or Frontex, the the border agency, um, all working together to implement a joint policy. the third area is subcontracting and this is a form of delegation it's uh, when states agree to a policy but then they implement it through an external international organization right I, I have to differentiate between delegation to an eu agency i actually classify that as collaboration because it's not really giving up much of their power or authority it's within the eu still where subcontracting is about delegating outside of the eu and of course, classic delegation logic happens here, right? Thinking about more efficiency or having more credible commitments, but there are lots of reasons and lots of problems with subcontracting and we'll get to it in the, in the future. And the fourth area is just unilateralism. And this is when states don't agree in a common policy and decide to take their own action. And they often take those actions through national um, institutions. And you can see some of these policies in the EU when sort of Hungary decides that they want to build a border and the EU uh, um, is like, "Ah, that's not part of our policy here, but they just decide to do it anyways. Um, And they don't have to coordinate because of it.
1: Now in the book you argue that capacity and credibility – shape which subtype of cooperation states are going to pursue. Um, and as you mentioned, you're focused on implementation, right? So not how decisions are made, but what happens after laws or policies are adopted. So can you explain this capacity and credibility argument for us?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I frame it as sort of necessary and um, and sufficient conditions, right? Um, the key here is that when uh, a state has... Um, high capacity for managed migration and are credible partners, the EU will trust them to do coordination they can go home and do their own coordination. And similarly, if they have a low capacity and are credible partners, well then they can collaborate together, work on joint projects and maybe buy in some capacity from the EU and implement those jointly. But if a country has low capacity and they're not credible partners, not trusted by the EU, then they're not going to give them lots of money and ask them to go do that alone. And they're not going to do a joint project. And so they're forced to find another way to cooperate. And here I call this uh, subcontracting because they empower another actor, usually an international organization to do the implementation, which is um, because they trust that actor more than the, the national government. And of course, um, if a country has high capacity and they're not credible partners, they, they have the capacity to do what they want. Well, they'll go off and do unilateralism just because they're able to do that. Now, there are costs for each one of those There are low accountability costs. When um, sort of a, a country is trusted, um, you can trust that they'll be accountable. If they're um, a, a high capacity, they're able to do it uh, on their own. It doesn't cost that much money. So there are different uh, costs and benefits for each type um,
1: So your empirics start with us looking um, at how cooperation on migration evolved over time in the EU. Can you tell us about
2: that? Absolutely. In the EU, I mean, the theory of European integration is that at one level, there are intergovernmental negotiations where states negotiate together through different EU institutions. So sometimes they're in the Council of Ministers, sometimes they're at uh, the European summits. Other times uh, they have ad hoc uh, meetings, but they negotiate on certain issues. And the EU had always thought of itself as an economic institution, right? Start with economics and then it sort of spills over to other issues. And immigration in many ways was not supposed to be part of that project, right? In terms of national sovereignty, in terms of these ideas of who uh, controls who gets to come in and out of a country, that's not part of the EU project traditionally. But if we look historically, it has gradually grown to be part of the EU institutions. And I have this, um, this example at the beginning of my chapter, so sort of the messy history of the EU. There's a sort of formal idea that, you know, the different treaties of the European Union moved the process from pillar three to pillar one, and then that was it was formally part of the EU. But the messy actual history is that it evolves after every single instance of negotiation policy proposals, policy failures and then coming back to the table and renegotiating and finding a new way. And so part of my uh, this chapter in my analysis is thinking about how policy failure actually updates the information that um, that states have about each other. So they update the information about how much capacity they have and they update their information if they can trust each other using these policy failures. So If we think about within the EU, there are actually sort of an evolution of informal agreements with amongst each other where they sort of uh, migration ministers were meeting together for years talking about um, just their policies. Maybe they coordinated and changed their policies a little bit. Other times they sort of agreed to disagree and went home and stayed that way but gradually they they start having common statements, sort of the definition of what a refugee is. They have other um, uh, moments where they start to cooperate more on migration or asylum. Um, The big steps though, are I I trace two policy areas. The first is in uh, border security, and the second is in asylum. So let's start with uh, border security, and we can talk about that. In border security, of course, we're thinking about the external border of the EU. But this isn't necessarily where the EU started, right? We had to start with the Schengen area or the Schengen zone, where states agree to lower their internal borders, have a common external border, and um, have free movement across. This is the definition of migration management, right? Huge amounts of allowing people to come in and out. And in fact, there's some somewhat of a a contradiction here in that they had to lower um, the internal border to allow more free movement, but they had to increase the exterior in order to prevent uh, uh, others from coming in. And that was about trusting, right? Trusting the external borders to be able to do the sort of border management that they're doing. So on the first level, this is, um, I I call it pre-Frontex, before there's an agency for the EU, in which the European um, Union countries start to cooperate on things like the Schengen border code. They negotiate over details over how you're going to check visas, who you're going to issue visas for, Um, And they create a system called the Schengen Information System and the Visa Information System. Both of these are databases in which they uh, coordinate together via national offices, entering data into a data system, and they agree to go back to their home agencies, and they're communicating this way. So for me, this is the definition of coordination, right? Still national agencies deciding and talking together and then implementing it themselves. Of course, They run into problems. They figure out that this isn't quite uh, good enough. They don't have enough information sharing. People aren't entering the same data the same ways. And so the information breaks down at a certain point. And so they decide to empower even more um, uh, cooperation. And the next step, which is really the establishment of Frontex, right? Frontex is the border agency. And this happens after uh, 9-11, right, 2011, and after the terrorist attacks in Madrid in 2004. Um, The European Commission proposed to put together a certain type of agency. This evolves over time from just sharing border guards to having uh, border guards that are just Frontex and employed all the time. Um, The different types of uh, things that Frontex can do. I mean, really, it's not about... um, Frontex taking over the border, right? They're coordinating amongst each other, but I I call it collaboration because there's a joint implementation, right? The Frontex agency um, is helping the border states actually implement policies together. Um, so there are certain moments when this is important, for example, when there's a, a crisis at a border. So uh, a member state on the external border can request from Frontex to have a joint operation. They literally call these joint operations and they ask other European member states to donate or, or nominate uh, border guards to go on these joint missions. And so they're working together to literally implement together a policy on the border. Uh, that can mean uh, helping to helping border guards on the external border actually um, manage flows of of people coming in and out. Uh, Oftentimes that's helping to identify risks or uh, helping to give uh, technology. Sometimes they give like fingerprinting uh, technologies to the border states. Um, But really it was a a tool for these moments when there were crises at the border. So um, for example, They call these actually rabbits, which is a funny term. It's a uh, rapid border intervention team. Oftentimes Frontex is doing things like technical support, not really operations at the border, but technical support, like helping to manage databases or fingerprinting or um, sometimes they're empowered to do joint return operations. So if several member states are returning migrants, um, uh, failed or refused asylum seekers to Afghanistan, for example, they can work together to organize one flight to take uh, people from joint um from different member states back to their country of origin. Although, Uh, This is complicated because the uh, EU is not empowered to do um, this specific thing. They have to be coordinated with national authorities. So again, this is a perfect example of collaboration in that they haven't given authority to the EU to do it alone. They're jointly operating those. So on each one of these flights, they'd have national authorities um, actually leading and helping the people they were deporting back to the country of origin, of course, as 2015 and the number of people arriving in Greece and Italy uh, uh, starts to increase, the EU realized that they need to uh, increase the power of the Frontex and decide that, well, Frontex wasn't doing enough before some of the policy failures come in. We need to upgrade its mandate and find ways of allowing uh, Frontex to do more intervention. So uh, this is, they, they rename it in 2016 to the European border and coast guard and give it both a larger budget, more equipment, they have a permanent staff, and now uh, the, the, the border guard becomes responsible for search and rescue operations, although it's scaled back from before there, the sort of main leads on search and rescue operations. What we see over time, though, is this sort of stepwise, um, one step forward, maybe two steps back as it fails, but it sort of builds up both the capacity and the legal mandate of uh, the border security at the EU level to be able to work together and uh, gives the authority of the European uh, border and coast guard really uh, more authority than they ever had imagined at the beginning of its process. Now, on the second policy area in asylum, we can see it's maybe a little slower, less states were uh, interested in sharing a uh, uh, capacity or even thinking about um, letting other states decide what their asylum standards would be. But it does evolve quite um, uh, quite stepwise. Um, the European um, Union uses, uh, of course, directives, which are passed by the council and parliament jointly and then have to be transcribed into national laws. Right? These directives are passed um, on lots of different issues from uh, uh, you know, uh, migration, um, from, from uh, the way in which you detain people or the, the asylum processes. Um, in the early two thousands, the council starts to set minimum standards across all of the EU. These can be things like um, the like reception for asylum seekers, the asylum procedure, the refugee status, what it, it qualifies as, um, and uh, temporary protection status, which we saw used most recently with Ukrainians. Um, they also passed the Dublin uh, regulation and the Eurodac database. This is important because the Dublin uh, regulation says that at, if an asylum seeker comes into a, into the EU, their case should be seen or heard in the first country that they arrive in. Um, and now that obviously leaves the burden mostly on the external states. And we're going to see this causes a big problem for both Greece and Italy because they are now stuck with the largest burden because most people arrive in their borders. EuroDAC, the second regulation, is all about um, coordinating the Dublin um, agreement. It's a a database that communicates back and forth between countries and is a form of collaboration, again, because they use this database to communicate with each other. Um, So the first wave of the sort of common European asylum system, this is a set of directives, happens um, in the early 2000s up to 2004. At a certain point, some countries haven't implemented them properly uh, here you can think italy and greece they haven't implemented them properly yet and um, and there's a second wave of uh, of uh, the common european asylum system where they reform the directives they update them and try countries try to get countries more in agreement about what will be in these and the idea then is that they will probably pass uh, domestic legislation which will be in line with that and they do they, they pass updated versions of all of those that's from 2015 2005 to 2013 um, but this is all coordination at that level right they're agreeing at the eu level and then going home and uh, to their national governments and trying to implement them there We see at a certain point, there are some countries that don't have the capacity to to implement these policies and the EU creates in um, 2011 the European Asylum Support Office. We call that EASO. Um, It is supposed to do something similar to Frontex in which European countries can uh, nominate their own asylum officers to this pool of officers who then can go on a mission to another European country to help them implement their policies. Again, this is a classic form of collaboration where they're agreeing on a policy together and then those officers are going directly to uh, the European countries to be able to help implement on the border. Of course, EASO um, has helped in Greece, it also has helped in Luxembourg, Sweden, Bulgaria, Italy, Cyprus, Malta and Spain. So uh, our classic example, which I'm going to talk about, is in Italy and Greece, but it's happened in other places in the EU as well. The third wave of the uh, common European asylum system I talk about is um, about harmonizing these asylum processes in the, after the 2015 and 2017 um, uh, crisis here, they're trying to, make it more fair, right? trying to reform the Dublin system so that countries will share the burden more equally. And second, they'll actually provide more of an operational role. They empower the European Asylum Support Office. They turn it into an agency first, and then empower them to have more operational roles on the ground. we see a huge spike in both Frontex and ESO's budget it goes up drastically and operationally on the ground and over time, after several failures and um, and new coordination mechanisms, they upgrade it to real collaboration. So I guess um, in this chapter, the main thing that I trace is the way in which it starts off as informal coordination, which leads to more formal coordination. They use directives and EU law to try to formally coordinate, but when those fail, they upgrade it again to collaboration with real capacity, higher budgets and joint operations on the ground. And so in some ways. If you talk to EU policymakers, they say, oh, don't worry. We haven't Europeanized EU migration policy. This chapter traces the slow journey, messy journey, as I say, from really not coordination to coordination to a real Europeanization of policy by the end, um, where you have both Frontex border guards that are EU level and asylum uh, officers who are EU level on the border processing applications.
1: Thank you, Nick. And I have to say, even as someone who specializes in refugee politics, I learned a lot from this chapter. I think my students will also learn a lot now from it when I assign it to them. Um, so as you hinted at, you you know, after discussing um, the, this process at the EU level, you moved to examining two cases, Italy and Greece. Um, before we get into these two cases, um, can you just tell us how and why you selected them?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So the first and most obvious reason is that they were politically and um, uh, empirically the most important uh, countries in Europe when receiving asylum seekers uh, during the period I was studying, 2015 and 2017. The numbers are off the charts compared to uh, elsewhere. The second was that um, I was interested in trying to see variation across the EU and how they were implementing policies. We see a real difference in Italy and Greece in terms of how they implement their policies, right? In Italy, they coordinate, they fun- funnel most of the money through the national governments. And in Greece, they um, they do the opposite. They delegate or subcontract to international organizations. So I needed some variation. But I wanted to choose, of course, uh, through political science methodology, a case selection criteria of most similar. So I chose based on regime type, we have um, the democracies, parliamentary systems, it's regional governance, they're all in the EU. Uh, it had to be proximity to border, right? I wasn't going to look at Germany because it has a very different case uh, and a different way of implementing policies and different problem, really, in terms of this. Um, and then I wanted a similar migration pressure. And both Italy and Greece during this period are receiving high levels of sea arrivals and, uh, at the same moment. And you can see, sort of by holding all the rest uh, uh um, the same see variation in how the EU responds and think about why, what's different in each case. I use, um, I'm a historical institutionalist. So I try to trace all of these policies back, um, uh, decades, if not centuries, um, and think about how those earlier policy decisions are made and what their impact is on the current institutions. And so I, uh, in both of my case study chapters go back, um, to the early 1900s, thinking about migration capacity in both places. I also really um, tried to trace where the money goes, right? Follow the money and think about that. And that is an important part of these cases that both Greece and Italy had huge amounts of money flowing into them. Whereas in the rest of Europe, that was not the case.
0: slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
1: So let's dive into these cases, and I'll just mention that, um, you know, it, it seems from the book that, you, you know, you did fieldwork in an impressive number of interviews that you'd drawn for, uh, for these two cases. So let's start with Italy. Uh, what do you find in that case?
2: Yeah. In Italy... The, the, the top line is that they coordinate right in Italy, they decide that there is high state capacity and that they're a credible partner and so they're going to channel most of the money and the policy interventions through the national governments now. That is is kind of a surprise when you think about it today, because Italy is not exactly a credible partner. And sometimes you think of Italy as not a high capacity state. But in the policy area of migration and in comparison to many other frontline states in in Europe, it does have a higher state capacity in terms of migration. the, the, the main like policy question I was, or, or uh, empirical question I was thinking about is uh, the EU put something like 150 million euros into Italy during this time. And 99% of it went through the national government, right? In contrast to Greece, where they're putting a huge amount of money as well. And 73% goes to international organizations and only 23% to governments. Right, So you can see a real contrast in Italy. This comes from a long repeated history of um, migration flows that are very high coming into Italy and a slow response over time in which the Italian government builds up its migration state capacity so that when in 2014 or 2017, uh, the, the most recent flow of people arrives, they have a higher state capacity. We also see on the credible side that, um, over time, they build credibility with the EU, that they will cooperate, they will be able to work together on certain policies, and when they're given money, they implement it the way that they were were told. Um, That that doesn't mean that they're always generous to migrants. Actually, that's not the case, as you'll see. But it does mean that they are um, following the EU line in terms of that. one of the key things I want to say about um, about migration state capacity, though, is that it isn't a new thing. I think the easiest way to think about migration state capacity is, like, oh, yeah, they funded a lot of um, borders or they um, they have new border guards. Or they have new technology. Well, migration state capacity is a old, old thing. Right. At least in Italy, they created a commission general for emigration in 1901 and then later reformed that into the Ministry of Italians abroad and immigration. So there is a a state capacity, even in the early days of um, this Italian, uh, the, the Italian government at that time of managing migration in some way. And we can see that it reforms and changes during different periods. So during the Italian monarch or uh, fascism, uh, Mussolini's um, uh, government, uh, the post-war consensus, and even the second republic. Now the migration capacity changes, but um, there is always a type of migration capacity. So it's important to see how those legacies actually continue today. And in both Greece and Italy, actually, this is interesting. They uh, had most of their migration capacity focused on emigration in the early days, but that. It switches in the 80s and 90s to a, a, a immigration, right? Controlling who comes into the country. Um, so. I want to talk about sort of the early 2000s when uh, Italy is receiving some flows of migrants across from Libya uh, by boats into Italy, and they have a general response in which they say, okay, well, we have to reform our system. We don't really have a formal asylum system yet. There was sort of an informal asylum system where uh, UNHCR was able to uh, grant de facto prima facie status, uh, but it wasn't a formal status that the government was uh, issuing. Um, but during the early 2000s, they create uh, a formal process, they create national commissions, which increases the capacity of processing asylum decisions across all of the, the territories. And then they also expand the detention accommodation centers. And in my book, I, I show the numbers of accommodation centers that increase over time. So this is before, way before the, the, the recent wave. There is also Of course, bilateral agreements between Italy and Libya, right, in in 1998 and in 2000. um, This is the Berlusconi governments. They uh, send about 5 billion euros to Libya in exchange for Libya policing their land borders, having migration detention centers and having joint patrols and accepting um, deportations back. And we see that pattern continues. So the initial responses that happened after 2015, there are earlier patterns of this earlier on. The real moment, though, is after the Arab Spring in 2011, where where in just a month, something like 30,000 people arrive in Italy. Huge influx, right? Now, the Italian government at that point are the ones who are most receiving. It's not not, uh, Greece. They respond by expanding the reception centers, expanding their administrative capacity by adding more commissions and um, really being able to uh, process the, using an emergency decree, process the asylum seekers there. Now, um, it wasn't so efficient. There are lots of problems with that. I wouldn't say that was an ideal, but it does in that period increase the migration state capacity um, drastically in ways that uh, Greece doesn't have, right? So in 2014, um, the, the wave of migration uh, starts a little earlier in Italy than in Greece. So in 2014, the numbers start to pick up in Italy. And Italy does the same thing. They, they they respond in a similar way as they did in the past, and they issue an emergency decree. They uh, create a new search and rescue mission, the Mare Nostrum. They expand the reception centers, and administration capacity again. And they work together with the EU to found something we call hotspots when the EU calls hotspots. These are uh, special reception centers that are jointly run by the EU and the, the governments to process incoming asylum seekers. And the idea is that if you centralize the capacity in one spot, both the EU and um, uh, national governments can process them in a more efficient way. Again, hotspots classic collaboration right? you see going from coordination, just national led responses to a gradual up to a, a, a collaboration. And that I argue is because Italy had a higher state capacity and we're trusted at this point. Right. Um, Italy, again, flexes its capacity muscle a little bit in comparison to Greece. They uh, get their standard operating procedures. They have a, a coordinated, pro- a, 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 like, l- legitimate process that's within the letter of the law in the um, in the uh, hotspots, whereas Greece doesn't sign a, a, a standard operating procedure within their hotspots until the European Commission issues a template and begs the, the Greeks to sign a standard operating procedure, right? So you see Italy, uh, Italian government lead in some of the coordination or the, the administrative parts, rather than letting the EU uh, lead. Uh, again, the, the Italians, uh, they, they organize most of the fu- the funding going through their Ministry of Interior and, um, and are able to respond in a fairly organized way. Now, I, again, I don't want to say that uh, the outcomes for migrants and refugees arriving in Italy was amazing. That's not the case, but in comparison to Greece, they had a more uh, organized system, they had a higher state capacity. And the EU at that point trust them because of past experiences with it. We also know that at that point, the Democratic Party was leading a coalition, this is a center left coalition that was pro EU. And so they responded in a way that I think um, the EU trusted them because of that. Right? Um in contrast, in March 2018, Slavoni, right, the head of the, the league uh, and the Five Star Movement have a win an election and they flip completely. And I would argue, we can talk about this more later, that, that this flip would have changed the, the policy response by the EU. They don't trust them anymore. And it uh, becomes a, a moment where can we funnel all that money through uh, the Italian government?
1: That's very, very compelling. Um, so you, you've already sort of drawn some contrast between Italy and Greece, but I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about subcontracting in Greece.
2: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So in Greece, the history of migration state capacity is similar to Italy, right? We said they're both emigration states in the early um, 1900s and then it flips, but in contrast to Italy, instead of building up their capacity over time, there's a real resistance to implementing policies and investing in uh, state capacity. And that is both center-left and center-right governments that resist that, right? They pass the EU uh, directives on asylum, but they don't implement them and fund the agencies that are supposed to implement them um, on both sides. And in part, that's because of the contradictions of the Dublin Agreement. So I want to just go a little more into the Dublin agreement and why that's such a, a problem for Greece, right? When all of these people arrive in Greece, they have to be the main people. Greece has to be the main actor that responds to it. But of course, because Greece is on the border, they receive many more people, right? The... At the early days of the Schengen zone and Dublin, this was fine because Greece was benefiting a lot from the Schengen zone, right? That means lots of tourists from Northern Europe were coming to Greece on beach holidays and Greeks could go abroad to work, great, right? But the Dublin system meant that asylum seekers would have to stay in Greece during that time and would probably be integrated there. At a certain point, this is in 2011, there's a case taken to the European Court of Human Rights that says, Greece isn't respecting the uh, EU law. They're not providing actual uh, humane conditions for people in detention. There's no real procedure for uh, uh, asylum seekers to apply and get their decision made. So there's no uh, legitimate way of getting asylum. So the European Court of Human Rights suspends all Dublin transfers back to Greece. At that point, uh, the Greeks are benefiting even more from this system, right? They benefit even more because they don't have to keep the asylum seekers. They can let asylum seekers continue on to Germany or France or elsewhere, and they still benefit from the sort of other EU policies. Um, that uh, actually reverses at a certain point because the EU realizes this has created perverse incentives, right? Um, Just to continue on that, at a certain point in the early, um, like 2007, 2010s, uh, there wasn't really a process in Greece to apply for asylum. You could apply at any police station, really, but 90, like 94%, I think, all applied in Athens. And um, Human Rights Watch says at this time, I wasn't around at that time in Greece, um, that people would line up, like thousands of people would wait in line outside the police station, hoping to be able to apply. And one asylum officer would walk down the line and just randomly pick or pick the most vulnerable people, like 100 people a day. So 100 out of 1,000 were be able to get access to this. So this isn't real access. You can see the lack of capacity. At a certain point during this time period of 2010, there's only 1,000 beds when you have something like 50 or 60,000 people in the country who are supposed to be accommodated and a backlog of cases that is up to 50,000 people. Right. Really low capacity in Greece and no incentive for Greece to invest in that capacity to build it up. So you can see we have a low capacity and very little trust with the EU at this point. Um, I want to highlight one thing, other sort of historical, it's not a quirk, it's a pattern. I think that is an echo from the past that um, about 100 years earlier, uh, after World War One, Greece and Turkey, obviously, uh, during the breakup of the Ottoman Empire, there's the Treaty of Lausanne. This is the idea that they would have a population swap. Right, there are a lot of uh, Greeks in Turkey and a lot of Turks in Greece, and that they would swap this. And this is over a hundred, uh, over uh, one million people were transferred by the governments uh, back, back. They weren't always from there, but they were transferred to the other um, areas. And this was endorsed by the League of Nations at that point they create something called the Refugee Settlement (coughs) Commission. And this is funded um, by uh, international investors. It's run by officials from the League of Nations. And they resettle refugees, uh, up to 500,000 refugees, in uh, Greece by giving them land and investing in sort of uh, uh, resettlement integration opportunities. But the Greeks at that point are extremely offended because it's a violation of their sovereignty that an international organization is settling refugees in their territory and over the time you can see in sort of the correspondence the greek parliamentarians arguing this is a violation of our sovereignty that the that the league of nations is doing this here um we see this echoed again in 2015 right the international organizations the eu and the un are again integrating refugees after the 2015 crisis. Um, And I'll go into a little more detail as I trace this this, uh, later on. So we come up to speed in 2015 and the numbers are quite different than Italy, right? Italy had, um, Uh, waves of uh, uh, higher numbers, but not nearly as high as uh, Greece. In 2015 through to like the end of 2016, we have over 60,000 people arriving in just uh, six months. At one point, 10,000 people arrive in one day in in October. Uh, The response is uh, chaotic. I think we all saw this in the news. There were, um, I, I had, friends who are volunteers from the uk who drove across the eu to like lesbos and wanted to donate uh, uh donate time and like jackets and sleeping bags, right? So we had civil society actors doing things there. The Greek government was responding. They um, provided some aid, but much of it was a wave through process where they were hoping people would keep moving towards uh, Germany and elsewhere. And at one point, some other research have documented uh, Greek officials who refused to fingerprint people as they arrived, which is not how it's supposed to be done. Um, and the Greek military are the ones who are setting up most of the, the, the camps and otherwise. At one point, the Greeks also realized they have such low capacity that the way that they're going to increase their capacity to process asylum applications is to create a Skype hotline. So there's a Skype hotline in Greece that you can call for applications, but only during cer- certain time periods where there's a translator who speaks your language. Right. so Mondays would be for Arabic speakers and Tuesdays would be for Farsi speakers. Right? And that continues to this day. Um, Of course, there's lots of problems with that because if you've ever had a Skype call drop, but imagine the Skype call dropping and your asylum uh, application and legal status being on the line, real problems there. Um, So that's one response. The Greek government responds. The EU responds as well, right? The first is through major structural reforms that they require, in part because it's in the backdrop of the Greek financial crisis at the time. They're doing major restructuring of the Greek government as sort of uh, conditional for the loans. They also do some restructuring within the Asylum and Migration Agency. The EU-Turkey deal happens at the same time, right? This is the idea that the EU gives $3 billion uh, euros in aid to Turkey in exchange for Turkey to register all Syrians, to actively patrol the Coast Guard, and to accept all irregular migrants. Of course, these were asylum seekers coming to Greece. They were accepting those back to to Italy, sorry, back to um, Turkey. That comes into place in March 2016 and does drastically reduce the numbers, right? Drastically reduce the numbers. We see the, um, the arrangement doesn't really work as, uh, as assumed. Uh, only something like 3,000 people have been returned from the island's back. So they had imagined much bigger numbers, but uh, it stopped the flows, but the, the detail of it didn't really work out that way. The hotspots continue in, um, in Greece. They also have hotspots. But in this case, Frontax and Iaso have much more staff than Greeks do, and they're taking the lead in the hotspots. Um, and then we see the again the the EU funnels a lot of money in Greece it was um, 700 uh, million euros to in emergency aid and 73% of that goes to international organizations the main one being UNHCR and here's really where I talk about subcontracting, right? The subcontracting happens directly through what they call delegation agreements, where they empower UNHCR to do very specific things about migration management, running um, all the accommodation or leading in coordination among actors, or even relocating refugees um, from uh, uh, Greece and Italy to the rest of Europe. Um, so. There's an argument that uh, the Greek government was officially doing most of this work, but in practicality, most of the international organizations, the, the organizations were doing most of this management on the ground. Um, I retell in one of the uh, parts of the book about a meeting I was sitting in with UNHCR officials and a lot of other NGO workers, and they're all arguing about this list of camps in Greece. Of course, they don't call them camps. They're called refugee sites because Europe doesn't like to have refugee camps in Europe, but they are camps. Right? But the, the workers were all arguing, who's in charge of this camp? Who's in charge of this camp? Because the Greek government, without telling them, had just assigned one actor, one NGO, to be in charge of it. And then the repercussions were that some uh, of these NGOs didn't even know that they were supposed to be in charge of it. And then others said, we don't have the capacity to do this. We've never run a camp before. And UNHCR steps in and coordinates all of that and are the sort of provider and coordinator of last resort in each one of those steps. Um, Where Whereas the government probably was supposed to be there in many of the coordination meetings, there was always a seat for the government, they never showed up. And UNHCR is in in practice running most of the coordination. We also see in numbers, right, that um, by 2017 UNHCR's presence, they had uh, 511 staff in country, while the Greek asylum service only had 451. So there are more UNHCR staff members than even Greek staff members. Um, and uh, and the um, the Greek government is sort of happy that the UNHCR is able to provide these services. This changes a bit over the time. We see different governments change um, and, uh, and it evolves. Um, I think one of the big moments was early on in the COVID crisis. Um, the most recent Greek government decides to close all the borders and change the camps from open camps to closed camps. Um, this is, I mean violation of many human rights. Camps are not supposed to be closed, especially in Europe. Um, But meaning uh,
1: meaning that people are unable to move in and out of the camps, right? They're unable
2: to uh, leave the camps, exactly, right? The the example here is Mora Camp in um, Lesvos, and it was a camp that was designed for 2,000 people. This is the camp that most people saw images of during 2015, but became overcrowded. And by 2020, it had 12,000 people in it, right? 10,000 more than it was ever designed for, and was closed, meaning people couldn't leave, right? So 12,000 people trapped and couldn't leave the camp. Um, In September 2020, the camp actually burns down. And um, this is a a, a crisis for both um, UNHCR and for uh, the Greek government, trying to figure out what's happening. There's outcry by the EU. The EU funnels more money into building another camp. The camp is set up and run in part by UNHCR again. And I have in the book this example where people are, are arguing that the Greek government needs to take responsibility for this huge human rights failure. And the Greek government say, well, whose logo is it on the tents? It's UNHCR's logo. They're the ones who are responsible, right? So you see, again, this sort of uh, shifting of responsibility away from the Greek government.
1: There's so many very telling um, anecdotes and stories in there. Um, And just for listeners who may not be familiar, UNHCR has come up several times. UNHCR is, of course, the UN refugee agency. So, uh, Nick, you end the book with this very well thought out, very well developed set of policy implications. And, you know, of course, we're all expected to end our books with policy implications, but you do such a wonderful job. And I I can't help but, uh, you know, think that you must be drawing on your professional experience there as well. Um, So I'm not going to ask you to go through all of the policy implications, but do you mind just highlighting a few of them?
2: Yeah, so I organize them into short term uh, policy recommendations and long term recommendations. The easiest short term recommendations, I mean, delegation is going to happen. It, um, it, in some cases, it's probably a better outcome for refugees. The key here is to make sure they're selecting the best uh, actor, right? Is UNHCR, the refugee agency, the best actor to implement there? Many times it is. Um, But to make the delegation agreements uh, better, right? Some of the problems that happened throughout the whole response was the sort of slack in the delegation agreements. What was legally required? What sort of responsibility and accountability mechanisms could happen? Um, Because when you delegate to UNHCR, the same sort of democratic accountability and transparency is not there that you have in uh, sort of the Greek government, right? Um, In terms of long-term, of course, you should think about building capacity of governments so that they don't ever have to delegate. Um, and you should build regional institutions that are fit for purpose. Because if you look at Frontex and you look at uh, the European Asylum Agency, they were not designed to do operational capacities at the beginning. So if they're going to do operational capacities, then they need to have that real strength in it. But I guess the sort of the deeper question is about having a normative framework for when and why you delegate. Right? Is this about uh, avoiding the tricky like, domestic politics of Greece? Is this a, about internal EU policies? I mean, I don't think people would say that's when you should delegate uh, a responsibility. Um, is, if it's about efficiency and, and getting really fast outcomes for refugees, then that may be the right case. But there's a larger discussion that has to be had about when and how delegation happens or when and how subcontracting happens and when it shouldn't happen. And I think that is a discussion the EU still hasn't had.
1: So the the book came out in January of 2022, um, and it was in production, of course, before that for for some time. Um, And of course, a lot of stuff has happened in Greece and Italy. A lot of stuff has happened in Europe um, in in the interim. So. Just really quickly, you know, can, can you give us some suggestions for how your framework can help us understand um, events that have happened since since the book came out?
2: Absolutely. So my my framework and the idea of thinking about credible partners and state capacity is that they're not stagnant variables. Right? These evolve over time. They're obviously related to their history. So when an election happens and the far right takes over, this updates the information the EU and other member states have to think about: Are they still trustworthy or credible partners? Right? In the same way, capacity can go up and down. Right? You can gut your capacity. You can fire all of uh, the asylum workers, or you could see in the U S under Trump, we lost a huge amount of resettlement capacity, right? So you can see an up and down of the capacity. In Italy, it goes through several waves. I mean, we saw uh, Slavoni and a far-right government, sort of a coalition, take over um, in March 2018. They start refusing NGO rescue boats, allowing them to disembark and actually pass a new law that strips um, humanitarian protection, one of the EU categories, um, from sort of Italian law, which I think was probably a violation of EU law. Um, They also suspend applications for individuals that would have been convicted of theft or sexual assault or possessing drugs, which is also a violation of a 1951 convention. Um, That Slavoni outmaneuvers himself and the uh, coalition uh, collapses. It's replaced by another progressive government, and many of these change directly. Um, And so you could see, again, a trustworthy government that the EU would work with um most recently though uh, we have in 2022 this like last couple of months um uh, Georgia uh, Maloney leader of a far-right coalition now the brothers of Italy won I mean this is a, a party that has its roots in neo-fascism extremely anti-migrant but they're also anti-eu so you can see how the EU has to figure out are they credible partners Right. Um, it doesn't erase their capacity. Italy still has a stronger capacity than, than Greece, uh, but they will. I, uh, they are continuing to block NGO boats and have proposed ideas like um, having hotspots not in Italy, but having hotspots outside of Italy, perhaps in Libya or elsewhere. Right Now, that proposal sounds radical, but um, Angela Merkel also proposed something like that. So there are some convergences in these policies across Europe. Um, um, uh, the EU. On the Greek side, um, again, we've had several coalition governments fall and and join. The policies haven't changed so much. They're very much anti-migrant um, and still relying heavily on uh, the UN to, to implement many policies. There is talk always within the government about regaining its sovereignty and taking over these UN policies. But when push comes to sub, they don't actually take over because they don't have the capacity yet. And in many places, I argue this is because the EU still doesn't trust the Greek government. There are very big violations of human rights. I mean, just I think this last week, over 100 migrants were found on the border of Greece and Italy, stripped naked. And both Italy and Greece are arguing that it was the other one who was doing a pushback. Well, we know that there was a human violation somewhere. Um, We also have documented examples of Greece facilitating with Turkey pushbacks. These are illegal... um, when an asylum seeker comes to the country, they have to look at their applications. And if you push them back across the border, that's a violation, obviously. Um, And then more widely, Greece is cracking down on NGOs, um, arresting and trying people who've helped migrants and refugees when they arrive, trying to close the space for helping refugees. And I think that is a trend across Europe as well. So you can see how the framework still applies. It can help predict and understand why and when uh, there will be coordination, collaboration, or, or subcontracting, and, um, and that these are not static uh, policies. They will change over time.
1: So uh, Nick, of course, as an expert on migration and Europe, you've also written separately about uh, responses to the Ukraine crisis um, uh, in the Washington Post's uh, monkey cage, and I recommend to listeners who are interested to to look up that piece. But um, we've taken up so much of your time, Nick. Uh, so I just want to ask you one final question. Um, so we've talked about this book at length. Um, I'd love to know what you're working on now.
2: Uh, thank you so much. Um, the new project is actually with Kelsey Norman at Rice University, and we were thinking about how within the EU we've subcontracted these policies. But one of the major policy responses, in addition to subcontracting, was to look externally to pay other countries to do the um, the migration management, uh, specifically the EU emergency trust fund for Africa, and this is five billion euros, similar to the the EU uh, Turkey um, deal, but paid across lots of different countries in um, in Africa hoping that it will restrict or prevent migrants from ever leaving. And our new project is looking at um, uh, across Africa, how the impact of these policies are, and what the implications for migration governance overall is, we're really interested in the question of, um, I mean, it's not that they work, right, we know that most of this migration development aid doesn't actually prevent migrants from leaving. But what is the impact on democratic governance. Is this undermining democracies? I mean, we know it's undermining European democracies, you can see in Greece and otherwise, but is it undermining um, sort of Kenya's democracy or Egypt's democracy if you're empowering border guards to do things that maybe aren't uh, in the letter of the law or are using violence against refugees? I mean, it could support democracy or it could undermine democracy. And so we're interrogating this in sort of a, a new book project looking at those um, those issues.
1: That's a fascinating and very important project, um, and I hope that I can have you and Kelsey Norman on the show to discuss uh, that book when it comes out. Um, thank you so much, Nick, for being on the show.
2: Thank you so much as well.
1: The book is Nicholas Misinski's Delegating Responsibility, International Cooperation on Migration in the European Union, published by University of Michigan Press in 2022. Thank you for listening.